Daniel chapter 6, where we left off in verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the, mouth, the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and, and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. In the first part of the chapter, remember, we asked and answered the question, have you ever been unjustly accused of something? And if you ever had to suffer the consequences of that unjust accusation, typically the world is broken down into two things. Things you really did, things you didn't really do. Is there any value in suffering because you're an idiot? There really isn't. The Bible says, blessed are you who suffer for righteousness' sake. If you've ever been mistreated because you decided to do what was right 
instead of doing what was wrong, the Bible says that there's great honor and glory. When you're mistreated, do you whine? Do you complain? This chapter simply and forcefully reminds us that when we're accused falsely, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, here's the plan. We trust God, and then we trust God for deliverance. And when we're treated unjustly, we're to wait for God to vindicate us. And when we're treated unfairly, we allow God to retaliate. When we suffer undeservedly, We let God use us to make a difference. And then we allow God to reveal himself and then allow God, we give him permission to use our circumstance in order to communicate to others. You may have read this chapter a million times and always thought it was about the deliverance of Daniel. And you would be right. But the chapter is as much about Daniel as it is about Darius. Because he was watching. He was watching. And there are people watching in your life. When you get up in the morning and you go throughout the day, when you meet and greet people, when you're at the grocery store, when you're on the job, when you're at school, when you're with your children or you're with your parents or you're with your friends, no matter who you are with, they're watching you. They're watching how you respond to any given circumstance. They're watching when you face trials and tribulations and sufferings and accusations. And now we look at the deliverance. Look again in verse 16. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel. They cast him into the den of lions. Now you'll remember why he's there. Remember, wicked conspirators created a law so that no one could pray except to the king. And you'll remember that Daniel prayed every day, three times a day. He prayed openly. He prayed publicly. He did not pray to impress. It was his manner of life. And often you'll hear people say, when you get in trouble, pray. And you go, oh, you always say that. But it's because we don't always have a biblical view of prayer. You know, the command to pray is repeated throughout the Scriptures. Romans 12, 12. It's Paul wrote, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Colossians 4, 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. The Bible says that we pray because it was the habit of Jesus to pray. We pray and we're given an example in the early church in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We pray because prayer is God's chosen method for defeating the devil, for saving the sinner, for restoring the backslider, for strengthening the saint, for sending the laborer, for healing the sick, 
for glorifying God's name, for accomplishing the impossible, for giving what's needed, for imparting wisdom, for bestowing peace, for keeping you from sin, for revealing the will of God. Do you need any more excuses? And that's, that's just what I could come up with in a few moments. The king was aware of Daniel. I want you to once again note in verse 16. Look what it says. It says, But the king spoke at the end of verse 16, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually. We're going to pause right there just for a moment. Do you serve God continually? Or conditionally? What does it even mean to serve God continually? The king was aware of Daniel's persistent worship. The king was aware of Daniel's faith and of Daniel's faithfulness. And I'm going to suggest to you that Daniel bore a consistent testimony of faithfulness to, the, to God and to the king. Now, I'm going to suggest something else. Is it possible, as the king watched Daniel's life, that he began to be exposed to the word of God and the promises of God? Whatever it was that Daniel did, whatever Daniel said, it left the king with the impression, and read it for yourself, this God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, Usually I wait till the end of the message to give you a point and say, if you forget everything else I say, remember this. This is the part that I want you to remember right at the beginning of our study. When the king says, your God whom you serve continually, I want to give you a little help. And I don't have time to explore it completely, but I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want you to make a note. Now, if you don't know where it is, it's towards the back of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Remember, giants eat peas and corn. And that's how you sort of remember. In in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives a picture of the saint who serves the Lord continually. And I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I just want to just point out a couple of things. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Here's how you know if a person is following God continually. Ready? They follow Jesus in love in verses 1 and 2. Then the saint avoids immorality in verse 3. They refrain from obscene language in verse 4 and 5. They refuse to allow others to deceive them in verses 6 and 7. They walk in the light in verses 8 and 9 and 11 through 14. Then they seek God's will and then they're prepared to do it in verses 10 and 17. Then they use every opportunity to do what's good in verse 15 and 16. They refuse to drink wine or other intoxicating beverages to the point of inebriation in verse 18. But rather they're filled with the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 18. They use music to encourage each other and to worship God in verse 19. 
13. They're thankful for all things in verse 20. They willingly in humility submit to each other out of love for Christ in verse 21. And by the way, if you do that over and over and over and over and over and over again, people will look at you and they'll say, there's something odd about you. There's something different. I couldn't help but noticing that you serve your God continually, not conditionally. And remember, a person who serves God conditionally serves Him because he feels like it. She feels like it. They feel like going to church. They feel like opening their Bible. They feel like loving. They feel like avoiding immorality. They, they, they feel like they want to have sweet, sweet language. They, they feel like it's okay to just allow a little deception in their life. They feel like it's okay to walk away from the light. They feel like God's will can certainly be compromised in this particular instance. And it doesn't matter if they do good. Do you serve the Lord your God continually or conditionally? Now we turn back to Daniel. Look verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now remember, the seal represents the king's authority. And he is standing behind the execution. Therefore, the guilt, or in this case, the innocence, is irrevocable. And remember what we've already learned as we've studied earlier in Daniel, that according to the laws and the Medes of the Persians, when an edict was given, when a law was given, it was full and final, irrevocable, because the Medes and the Persians believed that the king was infallible. There's a historian named Montgomery who cites an incident during the reign of Darius III in 336 to 331. This is the time right before the collapse of the Medo-Persian Empire, right before Alexander the Great comes and conquers the land. But Darius III put a man to death that he knew was innocent. And according to this historian, immediately Darius repented. He blamed himself for having greatly erred, but it wasn't possible to undo what was done because of the law of the Medes and the Persians being unalterable. When you live with an authority that is considered infallible, it makes it irreversible. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear there's only one infallible, inerrant guide. And that's the revelation of God in Christ and in the Bible. By the way, this reminds me of another king, a governor, if you will, who placed another stone over another pit. Do you remember that when Jesus was placed in the tomb, the Romans placed a Roman seal on the tomb? The idea was when you break the seal... You break the will of Rome. And so, by placing this seal on this den, he made it abundantly clear that the law could not be broken. This reminds me of the law in general. Laws are made and laws are broken. But God reserves the right to break a man-made law 
when it's going to serve a spiritual purpose, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And now we read about the depression of the king. Look at this. We go from, if you will, the deliverance of Daniel into the den to the depression. Look at verse 18. It says, Now the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, and his sleep went away from him. Those of you who have been studying the book of Daniel with me remember another sleepless night in Babylon earlier in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar couldn't, when he tossed and turned. Remember that the king had been tricked into ordering the execution of his most trusted, the wisest, the most remarkable man in the empire, and he wasn't fine with it. And because the king was tricked by a bunch of bureaucratic bozos, criminals, selfish leaders, bent on exercising power without accountability, you can imagine that this caused him a great deal of grief. And the more the king pondered the circumstance, the more disturbed he became. When the Bible says that he spent the night fasting with no musicians, it means that he didn't avail himself of his customary entertainment or sleep. In other words, he didn't go home and watch Leno. He didn't go home and watch The Late Show. He didn't go home and take drugs in order to try and get himself to sleep. He allowed the agitation to stir. And you can bet that he began to rehearse in his mind the continual testimony that we've already talked about. Has Daniel been faithful? Yeah. Has Daniel been godly? Yeah. Has Daniel been wise? Yes. Does he even complain about being cast into the den? No. And look at verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning, and he went in haste to the den of the lions. And look at verse 20. And when he came to the den, He cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you served continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Look at verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, Get me out of here! No, it doesn't say that in the text, does it? It doesn't say that he's freaked out. It doesn't say, you know, you, 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 can all, you, you kind of want to hear the growls in the background. I've been fine up to now. I think they're hypnotized. You know what? When you read this particular passage, particularly in the original languages, it reeks of calmness. It's the exact opposite of agitation and fear. There's a sense of calmness. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Can you imagine when the king heard those words? And then Daniel gives the explanation in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me question. Is that supernatural? 
Is that miraculous? Is that unbelievable? The information that is given by Daniel, he says, because I was found innocent before him. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that it doesn't mean that he was innocent of everything every time. But in this particular instance, he certainly, he stands, if you will, blameless. And by the way, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means he has a clear conscience. He's found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Daniel is blameless before the Lord, and he's blameless before the king. Daniel, and here's the idea, he hasn't betrayed God. He hasn't betrayed his position. He hasn't betrayed the king. His life has been a life of honoring both God and the king. And so the disobedience of Daniel wasn't contempt for the king, but respect for the king of kings. And by the way, when you're faced with the reality that you're going to obey God or not obey God, when someone calls upon you to disobey God in order to meet their expectations, is it possible that somebody's going to be upset with you and unhappy with you because you chose to honor God and obey God rather than dishonor God and disobey God? But have you ever noticed that when you choose to honor God, Instead of dishonor God, when you choose to obey God rather than disobey God, the person that you're dealing with takes it personally. And it is sometimes a difficult thing to tell our parents, to tell our children, to tell our boss, to tell our friends that you would rather honor God. By the way, we have no desire to disobey kings. We have no desire to disobey governors. We have no desire to disobey presidents and congressmen. But we are willing to disobey every king. We are willing to disobey every governor. We are willing to disobey every president who commands us to disobey God. Will that put you in the hot water? I think it will. Some of you are facing your own little private lion's den. Not because you did what was wrong, but because you did what was right. And now look at verse 23. It says, Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. Now remember, 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 Daniel is way, way north of 80 years of age. So you can rest assured they built a handicapped access ramp to to take Daniel out. They take him up out of the den and look what it says, and no injury whatever was found on him. And here's the key. The text gives it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You should underline it if that's what you're inclined to do. Because he believed in his God. It wasn't because Daniel was God's pet. He believed in his God. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, 
you'll notice that in the hall of faith, the hall of faith is given over and over again. I wonder if I have time to turn there just real quick in Hebrews chapter 11. If you turn there and you read for yourself what is given, it's remarkable. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice because he believed in his God. Enoch, by faith, was taken so that he did not see death because he believed in his God. Noah believed in his God. Abraham believed in his God. Isaac believed in his God. Jacob believed in his God. Joseph believed in his God. Moses believed in his God. If you've ever wanted to know how you enter into the hall of faith, it's when you believe in, in your God. He orders Daniel release. His heart, the king's heart, is filled with joy. He's lifted from the den. He's inspected for injury. And then he's transitioned into the hall of faith. Look at verse 33 of Hebrews chapter 11. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. And here's Daniel's honorable mention. Stopped the mouths of lions. The angel shut their mouth. But it was because he believed in his God. Lockjaw in the lion's den. In verse 24 it says, And the king gave the command. And they brought those men who had accused Daniel. And they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives. And the lion overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Some people might say, well, the reasons why the lions didn't eat Daniel was, well, they weren't really hungry. What do you, what do you think about that? I think that that's one of the reasons why this is put in there, but I think that there's another reason. The king orders the corrupt traitors and their families executed. They had conspired to deceive the king and execute his most loyal subject. Now think about that for a moment. Doesn't it make perfect sense that they would reap what they sow? By the way, is there a principle in the Bible that God is not mocked at what a person sows that they also reap? Also, there's another biblical principle that they would suffer the same execution that they had sought for Daniel. By the way, in the, in the Ten Commandments, do you realize that if you bear false witness against a particular person, the punishment, according to the Old Testament, was you should have to embrace the punishment that you falsely accused them of. So you falsely accuse a person of lying or cheating or stealing or adultery or murder. Executing families along with the criminals was very common in the ancient world. In part, to prevent retribution in the future. But there are people who are going to listen to this study and even read the text and say, hey, wait a minute, is that 
fair? Is that right? Is that just? John Whitcomb writes, and I quote, The God of Israel gave a law to his people through Moses that children should not, quote, be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. That's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 6. If Achan's entire family was stoned to death for his sin, it was because all of them were active participants with the head of the household in that particular city. He's making reference to Joshua chapter 7. But the Medo-Persians had no such merciful law. Wives, children, other relatives were often killed at the king's command when a man committed a serious crime against the royal house, thus nipping in the bud any possible retaliation by the criminal's family. To say nothing of the deterrent that such, a, such drastic justice would provide for potential enemies, unquote. So here's the point. The Medo-Persians didn't have a merciful law. The Bible does have a merciful law that children shouldn't have to suffer for the sins of their parents. I watched an interview with Katie Couric that, that she had with the vice presidential candidate, Governor Sarah Palin. She asked the governor on her views about abortion and the use of RU87. Katie Kirk specifically asked the governor, would this governor seek to outlaw all such morning-after-abortion remedies? Tragically, the governor said, quote, I wouldn't use this pill. She should have said, Katie, do you love justice or do you hate justice? I'm going to answer your question, Katie, but I want you to answer my question. Do you love justice or do you hate justice? What do you suppose Katie Couric would have said? Well, I love justice. I, I'm all for justice. And then I would have said, Katie, do you think that a child should be punished for the sins of the mother and the father? Is that fair or appropriate? Hopefully she would have said no. In all fairness to the governor, we don't always have the time to think of a biblical answer on the tip of our tongues. But if I were the governor's advisor, I would say, the next time you're asked that question, governor, my response would be, why would you insist on killing a child for the sin and disobedience of its parents? Why does that seem to be the best solution? you'll note that Daniel doesn't seek retribution against his enemies. The Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee and a high-ranking persecutor, after meeting Jesus, would write in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Never take your own vengeance, or never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. In the Old King James, it says, Give place to wrath. That means believe in judgment. Believe that there is a God who will right every wrong, who will execute both justice and judgment. And then he, he writes in Romans 12:19, For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know what's interesting about that? Daniel doesn't have to seek revenge. 
and he doesn't have to seek vengeance, and he doesn't have to seek justice. And listen carefully. Neither do you. Have you been mistreated? Have you been unjustly accused? Has something been taken from you that you believe belongs to you? Make no mistake about it. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Before church started, a couple of guys pointed out to me that our our new bands have been keyed. Somebody came along and just scraped a deep message into the side of the van. And I said, someone keyed my van? And then the Lord reminded me, it's not your van. It's my van. Oh, that's right. It's your van, Lord. Yeah, it is my van. I'll take care of this. I'll take care of this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And then I was reminded of my own angry, bitter heart when I was a young man. By the way, when you were a younger person, did you ever do something wicked and wrong? Evil even? I know I did. I did it because my heart was filled with anger and my heart was filled with bitterness. And I had this thought in my mind that private property didn't really matter. And I gave myself permission to destroy other people's things with no remorse and no regret. Because I was bitter. And because I was angry. And then someone made the mistake of praying for me and sicking the hounds of heaven on me. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is a keen investigator. And the Holy Spirit will hunt you down. The Holy Spirit will reveal your heart. And the Holy Spirit will give you an opportunity to make right what you did wrong. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You know what my hope and my prayer is? That whoever keyed that van will fall on their knees and repent to a holy and a just God. Because the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So guess what? We'll rub it out. We'll put on a uh, a decal. Maybe a a scratch and sniff decal. After the execution of the king and Daniel's enemies, and they are the king's enemies, Darius issues a decree. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. You know why that's important? Because this is the net effect of Daniel's persistent faith. Remember what I said to you in the beginning? That people are watching. And because people are watching, 
They're watching you. They're watching how you respond. They're going to draw a conclusion about God. What's the net effect of his persistent faith? The world proclaims, hey, guess what? God is the true God who endures forever. His kingdom and rule will never pass away. The Lord delivers and saves in verse 27. The Lord works miracles. The the Lord rescues his servants. And so in verse 28 it says, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius. And in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. I like that in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered. Oh, by the way, were there other Daniels? Were there other Daniels who prayed like Daniel? Were there other Daniels who praised like Daniel? Were there other Daniels who escaped persistent persecution from their enemies? We're not told, but this Daniel prayed. This Daniel praised. This Daniel persistently served the Lord. And by the way, when you pray, when you praise, when you persistently serve the Lord, I guarantee you, you will prosper. Do I mean prosperity gospel? That you'll speak things into existence and that you'll be the head and not the tail and that you'll drive a a Cadillac Escalade hybrid, of course. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that you'll embrace the favor of God. This Daniel was persecuted. This Daniel was protected. This Daniel was preserved. This Daniel was preferred. This Daniel prospered. Do you serve the Lord continually or conditionally? Like I said, Daniel's old. He's way past senior citizen benefits. But he continues to serve faithfully. And he serves faithfully in the reign of Darius. He also serves faithfully over Cyrus, who ruled the empire. And by the way, with the elevation of Cyrus, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. And by the way, for those of you who studied with us when we were going through the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 45... There's an interesting statement. It's actually in Isaiah chapter 44. Somebody asked me this today. They said, if you could only give a couple of prophecies in the Bible, out of the 300 prophecies, which would you turn to? And I thought of Isaiah chapter 45, but before I share it with you, Isaiah 44, 28 says this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then in chapter 45, in verses 1 through 4, 
It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. A hundred and fifty years before Cyrus is ever born, the Lord prophetically lays out what will happen from the transition of the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Imagine a person 150 years before the birth of Abraham Lincoln calls him by name and says, Abraham Lincoln, I have called you to be my servant and I'm going to use you to proclaim the Emancipation Proclamation. That would blow your mind, wouldn't it? The second prophetic prophecy that I pointed to was Daniel chapter 9, which unfolds the kingdom. And, and when you look at Daniel chapter 9, it, go, it will begin to unfold the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of the Greeks, the kingdom of the Romans. With the elevation of Cyrus, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. The second of five kingdoms enters into the prophetic landscape. The other kingdoms will be Greece, Rome, and then finally Christ's millennial kingdom. And why is all of this important to you? Because Daniel served the Lord continually and not conditionally. God would use this man to reveal the future. I'm sure that Daniel had no idea that when he marched into the lion's den that we would be having this Bible study tonight. And that we would be reading from his life and his words. It wouldn't be long before Cyrus would order the release and the relocation of Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem. They're going to leave under the leadership of Zerubbabel. One of the net results of Daniel's miracle, the children of Israel who leave, they're going to understand the power of God to fulfill His promise. I'm going to ask you a hard question. If Daniel could have avoided going into the lion's den. Do you think he would? If he could supernaturally be told what was going to unfold and what effect it would have on the future, do you think he would have stayed or would he have said, I think I'm going to pretty much uh, skip the lion's den thing. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you had a lion's den in the past? Is there something snapping at you? Threatening you? Hurting you? Scaring you? By the way, if you're a Christian, almost certainly you're going to wind up in a lion's den. But I'm going to ask you a question. If you could avoid it, will you? Even after you've already read this particular chapter, 
and you begin to understand perhaps for the first time how God is going to use your pain and your suffering and your circumstances to bear testimony to a watching world? What's the obvious lesson? If we truly trust the Lord, He's going to deliver us. Sickness, uncertainty, unemployment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the test or the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. By the way, when Paul wrote those words, is there a lion's den waiting for him? There is, isn't there? There's a prison cell. And he is going to go there. And it's God's plan. It's God's purpose. He's going to wind up in prison, and it's from prison that he will write almost all of his epistles. Are you a Christian? The Christian bears unmistakable marks. And one of those unmistakable marks is that as a Christian, you've been set aside for a lion's den. A few chapters earlier, the three children of Judah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were standing when everyone else was kneeling. And now we find Daniel standing when everyone else is kneeling. Because he's out of step with this world system. Christian, do you find yourself standing when everyone around you is kneeling? Do you find yourself kneeling when everyone else is standing? Do you find yourself going on a narrow path rather than a broad way. Christian, rejoice when you are out of step with this world system. Because the Bible says, don't love this world, neither the things that are in this world. Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. Rejoice when everyone in the world denies God, doubts God, dismisses God, and then you decide you're going to trust Him. God delivered them. One out of a fiery furnace, the other out of a lion's den. And by the way, there was no attempt on God's part to deliver them from the pressing circumstance or the pressure of death. And so when you see the flames, when you see the open jaws, you should be able to say, Suffering, testing, are the inevitable marks of the life of the Christian. I think we invented country western music. I beg your pardon. You know the rest. I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there has to be a little rain sometimes. But who wants lion saliva? Not me. 
Remember what I asked you earlier? If you can be kept from the lion's den, will you? Will you? Will you sacrifice the testimony? Will you sacrifice the consequences? Will you sacrifice the prophecy and the inevitability as God is trying to forge a link in a series of circumstances as you bear witness to His love and His mercy, His grace, His promises? You may not be kept from the difficulty, but here's the promise. You will be kept in the difficulty. David Jeremiah writes about his fear of flying and his anguish over traveling and and the thought that he would never see his family again. And he writes, one day I read this statement, a man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work on earth is done. I'm going to read it again. A man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work on earth is done. And then he writes, I didn't worry anymore. Because if I'm in the will of God, going where God wants me to go, I'm all right. And when God is done with me, I don't want to be here anymore. That's exactly how I feel. I want you to think just for a moment of the hungry beasts in your life. Daniel faced the lions because he was persistent in his faith. Daniel faced the lions because he served the the Lord continually, not conditionally. What's your response to the lions that you face? I want you to just take a quick inventory of some of your past trials. I want you to think about some of the things that you've experienced and some of the hurts and the pains that you've had to deal with. And I want you to think about God's deliverance. Now take an inventory of your present struggles. Lord, this is what I'm going through right now. Do you realize that it's okay for you to ask God for help? And it's okay for you to pray. Peter wrote, Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then it says in 1 Peter 5, 9, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers around the world. By the way, that should be a clue and a suspicion. That if your brothers around the world are experiencing pain and suffering and tribulation and lion's dens, and you are not, then the chances are that they're serving the Lord continually and you're serving the Lord conditionally. In Psalm 34, 7, the psalmist wrote, The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 97, 10, the psalmist said, You who love the Lord hate evil. 
He preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. God promises you that He'll be with you. And He promises you He will deliver you. He will deliver you out of the arms of your enemy. And minimum, He will deliver you into the arms of Himself. By the way, the next time you sing the song, Purify My Heart, let me be as gold or precious silver, purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. You might as well be saying, Send me in the fire. Open up the den. Give me my tetanus shot because I know that lions are inevitable. You're inviting trial. You're inviting testing. John Bunyan spent years in prison because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. He wrote, Unless I'm willing to pluck out my eyes and let the blind lead me, then God Almighty, being my witness and my defense, if it shall please Him to let frail life last that long, the moss shall grow on my eyebrows before I surrender my principles or violate my conscience. He spent eight years in jail simply because he refused to register to preach because he believed it was his God-given right to share the gospel because he believed the Bible said, freely you've received, freely give. How about you? Is there anything? Is there anything at all that you actually believe? Is there any principle that is non-negotiable and uncompromising? Is there any Thing at all that you're willing to draw a line in the sand and say I'm not going to do that I'm not going to compromise my witness I'm not going to compromise my prayer I'm not going to compromise my worship I'm not going to compromise my fellowship I'm not going to compromise my relationship We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I'm actually going to give you permission to refrain from singing the song if you can't sing it with your whole heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are many, many times when we face the fiery furnace. Lord, there are many, many times when when the lion's den seems inevitable, that, Lord, we cry, we whine, we complain, we, we try to get out of suffering the consequences of obeying you and thereby destroy whatever witness we might have to a watching world
destroy whatever truth that you wanted to use in our life to push people closer and closer and closer and closer to the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we know that the salvation of Daniel is going to result in one of the most amazing prophecies that has ever been given. And that generation after generation waits for the second coming of Jesus based on this prophecy. Lord, if you want to use us to bring someone a little bit closer to Jesus, Lord, we give you permission to do exactly that. Lord, we know that we're going to face trial and persecution and tribulation. But Lord, we want to rejoice and be of good cheer knowing that you have overcome this world. And so, Lord, purify us. 